Cloud data warehouses are databases hosted in cloud environments. They provide typical benefits of the cloud like flexible data access, scalability, and performance. The company Firebolt provides a cloud data warehouse built for modern data environments. It decouples storage and compute to operate on top of existing data lakes like S3. It computes orders of magnitude faster performance from gigabyte to petabyte scale by using a columnar data structure, vectorized processing, just-in-time query compilation, and continuously aggregated indexing. Firebolt scales with data lakes by processing queries across clusters of nodes in parallel, providing consistently fast processing and granular control over resources. In this episode, we talk with Eldad Farkash, co-founder and CEO of Firebolt. Eldad was previously a venture partner at Angular Ventures and a founder, CTO, and board member at SciSense before that. We discuss big data, data warehouses, and the unique benefits offered by Firebolt. A few announcements before we get started. One, if you like Clubhouse, subscribe to the Club for Software Daily on Clubhouse. It's just Software Daily, and we'll be doing some interesting Clubhouse sessions within the next few weeks. Uh, And two... If you are looking for a job, we are hiring a variety of roles. We're looking for a social media manager. We're looking for a graphic designer. And we're looking for writers. If you are interested in contributing content to Software Engineering Daily, or even if you're a podcaster and you're curious about how to get involved, we are looking for people with interesting backgrounds who can contribute to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, Again, mostly we're looking for social media help and design help, but if you're a writer or a podcaster, we'd also love to hear from you. You can send me an email with your resume, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. That's jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Eldad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great being here. So you work on Firebolt, and Firebolt is a cloud data warehouse, And before we get into exactly what you do, I'd like to talk about the category as a whole. We've done a number of shows about cloud data warehouses. You know, we've covered Redshift and BigQuery and Snowflake. And I'd just like to get your perspective on why the category of cloud data warehouse has become so important. Tons of reasons. But one big one is that if you look at how data is being moved and served today, every data pipeline ends up at a place where you need to analyze the data. So I think um, a few years back, we had to wire that stuff up. And now with cloud native data warehouses, that becomes simpler. So suddenly you see so many people who are using other things, getting and and setting up a cloud native data warehouse and just, you know, spilling the data into that. So it's, oversimplification of everything we've done to get analytics and data serving. And you know, cloud native data warehouses bring a lot of new things to the table. So I think that's why we see so much of, of cloud data warehouse and that's why kind of the biggest market goes to the cloud native data warehousing. You look at Snowflake, which is crazy, but it's perfectly uh, deserved. So yeah, so, so if I had kind of to pick between a key value store in the data warehouse, the data warehouse will win big time. There's a very small set of things you, you do with a key store, but there's a tons of, of stuff you do with a data warehouse. What's the typical data flow that you see these days between the transactional data layer and the data warehousing layer? Like, Are you seeing data being 
streamed from the transactional layer into the data warehouse? Are you seeing batches of data being moved from the transactional layer into the data warehouse? And what does that ETL pipeline generally look like? So I think, as usual, we have kind of multiple ways to move data around. So if you're coming from legacy, I would expect you to first start with batchy kind of a, a way of moving the data, which is perfectly fine. Today, there are easy tools to do that. Uh, you, usually, you would usually use a lake to stage the data. So no matter where the data comes from, which operational store, just, you know, it's a logs, it's, it's, it's a key value, whatever, you'll push it into the data lake and then you'll have your periodical kind of a, a pool from the lake into the data warehouse. This is the common way and actually the most, most used one by far. So even though you hear a lot about Kafka, Kafka is still just getting started when it comes to analytics. Now, over the last few years, data warehouse vendors starting, started to offer direct streaming support, which makes tons of sense because why would you need to stage the data? Why do you need this kind of iterated process, which is very error prone, which is slowly responding to changes in data, which kind of users get all the data served. So, so of course, streaming is, is something that everyone is, 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 is looking for. And I think if you look at cloud native data warehouses going forward, this will be the standard way to do it. So you always start by actually picking the formal data source. So you won't even necessarily pick your Kafka, you'll pick your Sumo logic, you'll pick your, your web servers that generate the logs, you'll pick those things and it will just start to stream. So yeah, but we're not, we're still don't see that as much as we see batch. On the other hand, when we work with kind of cloud native companies, companies that had their data born in the cloud and most of the team are data engineers, then Kafka is king. And, and, and in most cases, they, they immediately ask, can we just plug Kafka into the system? So that's kind of what we're looking at these days. In terms of the applications of the data warehouse, is it more based around reporting or interactive analytics or machine learning applications or maybe even real-time monitoring? What are the most popular applications that are built on the data warehouse these days? So... Pretty much most of the stuff you've mentioned, maybe real-time monitoring would be out of the scope usually. There are better tech and products to use to do that. But I think what really changed is, is we, we kept the same patterns. Like we have reports which are batchy. We have ad hoc dashboards which are less predictable. We have uh, feature stores that uh, serve stuff generated by AI and, and ML. So it will have the same things. The, the, the thing that really changed is, is the data and, and, and kind of the, the requirement. So, you know, a few years back, we used to split up internal versus external. We used to say you're building a customer-facing, something that's customer-facing, or you're building internal dashboards. And it's obvious that for internal stuff, you're, it's, it's easier, right? You're much more flexible. You can give up on speed a bit. You can, you know, you can play with the metadata people can be more understanding. But when it's customer facing, it demands latency, concurrency, scale, consistency. So there were all of those things that you know made customer facing a big deal. 
course, from a product perspective, you would really need engineers to build up kind of a data serving uh, solution when it comes to customer facing. But if we fast forward today, customer facing is as challenging as internal and vice versa, because if you look at cloud native data companies, they use the same data sets. It, you know, if you look at the data lake, it's the same data lake serving customer support. So if you're a kid and you just, if you think that you were uh, cheated out of the amount of credits that your gaming company gave you, you send them an email and they reply and they tell you how much you really need based on the amount of, I don't know, weapons you picked up or dropped or jumped. And they do that by actually running queries against the, the same data that the user itself sees. So you have a big data lake and you have internal apps, customer success, support, operation, building heavy stuff that is near real time, highly available. They demand the same thing. So I think that's the biggest trend we're seeing that because of the data, because of how the data changed, we see less offloading and more kind of uh, using the same data lake for stuff we would use a, a classic legacy data warehouse for before. So kind of aggregating and, and, and trimming down resolution of data works on legacy use cases, but you'll rarely be able to see that if you're kind of working with actual big data, companies that actually have, you know, tens or hundreds of terabytes of, of data being served like that. I did a show with the Snowflake, I think it was CTO. It must have been like three years ago or something. But my understanding is that one of the key design challenges in building a data warehouse product is the tiered storage. And because the customer really does not want to worry about managing what data is faster to access and what data is slower to access. You really want a data warehouse that is basically capable of keeping all that under the hood and tiering the store. And, and basically you throw everything into the data warehouse and the data warehouse figures out what to put into like bucket S3 style bucket storage and what's on disk and what's going to be like higher up the, the memory hierarchy and it sounded like a really, really hard engineering problem. So I guess I, I, I'm wondering to what degree you, you agree with, with that statement, that that is one of the canonical problems of de- designing a data warehouse, and to what extent it's been something that's, that's hard, been hard to solve at Firebolt. Absolutely. I think, uh, yes, the Snowflake CTO was absolutely, and is still absolutely right. Getting consumption-based elasticity at scale is extremely complex if you want to oversimplify it. If you don't want to oversimplify it, then you just expose tons of parameters and wires and you have experts doing that for you. But if you want to move data to places where they need to react fast and have no know-how or expertise into how to really kind of perfect the, the experience, then it's the data warehouse's job. And this is the biggest thing about data warehouse. The, they oversimplify complex, big stuff that we would work hard to accomplish before. And at the core of that is this simple yet, yet, you know, trivial yet so hard to achieve feature, which is I want to run something, get me the resource to run it as fast as you can. I want to pay only for using that resource for what I'm doing. So it can be a specific query 
It can be a pinned, isolated resource running dashboard. But the point is that I want my resource to be available fast. I want to pay for consumption, meaning only when I'm using the resource. And I want the resource to be optimized. What does it mean? It means that it needs to do stuff behind the scenes so that the experience gets better over time and that everything falls in place. And you mentioned it, mixing between tiered storage, more specifically mixing between cold storage like S3, hot storage like local cache, and super hot storage like RAM and CPU caches is extremely complex. And, and this, is, this makes a cloud-native data warehouse unique. And Firebolt, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Snowflake's design, I think, is, is revolutionary when it came out. For us, it was obvious that if you want to do cloud-native elasticity, it needs to support those principles. So, yeah, of course, there is consistency. How do you apply transactions and metadata changes across multiple clusters which belong to the same logical database? Because with, with, you know, with this aggregated storage, there is no database. The database is just a logical concept. There is storage, S3, and then there is a, a, a schema running a query at a compute block. The compute block can be a core sitting in a farm of servers. It can be a dedicated cluster. It can be a GPU instance. So it's not just about uh, kind of providing clusters. It's also about decoupling cost from compute. So you get a consistent cost experience you pay x amount of dollars for for a consistent experience yet behind the scenes crazy stuff happens all the time things change all the time but for you as a user yeah it feels like magic and it's extremely hard to achieve the consistency question how important is consistency in a data warehouse like you know i think of a data warehouse the term that was used for data warehouse type analytics uh, or applications at least like maybe four years ago was OLAP, on online analytic processing. And the sense I always got with OLAP was, okay, it's okay if OLAP is out of date a little bit. It's okay if OLAP data is a little bit messy because you're usually doing aggregations. You're usually doing just like large scale analytics where you're not re- it's not super sensitive you're 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 doing machine learning off of this and it's okay if a data point or two is is out of date or or copied or something like that how consistent do you need this data warehouse to be if you've got if you're doing aggregations across data where like some of the data is in S3 and some of the data is in like a in memory storage system and and you know you've done these writes at different times and maybe you've made some mistakes over time is consistency an issue so first, yeah, consistency is a big term. So consistency, when you know, when it's defined as fresh, how fresh is my data, is is not the thing here. I was actually referring more to consistency in terms of transactional and distributed consistency. So, for like like a resource is like a thread; it comes and goes. It serves a part of a specific query or a workload. Yet, you know, you have many of those running behind the scenes. And users change metadata, add and modify data all the time. But you have multiple compute resources serving the same table across kind of different use cases. So you need to make sure that if one uh, compute resource is you know, modifying something, that modification is, is safe. So it's, transa- it's like it, it, there is a transaction applying that. 
and it will be consistent across all compute resources for the same database. And if you're running one server, or if you're running in kind of this big shared nothing cluster, you don't have that problem. That problem exists when you switch to native elasticity, where isolated compute resources are working together under the same metadata, under the same data. So if, if you know, two compute nodes will get the same, will return the same kind of result, you will not have you know, uh, changing results based on the table or based on the resource that just served you the result. And that is extremely complex, especially when you just spin up and close a resource sporadically. And in many cases, it, if it happens kind of in a transient way. It just removes itself when your query is over. So that is kind of what I meant with part of the thing, like if you think foundation DB, or if you think kind of all of those solutions and technologies, this is a native part of the cloud native data warehouse. So it's not just the columnar storage, it's not just the tiered storage, it's not just the vectorized or just-in-time compilation. It's also kind of how you manage metadata, where metadata is also the data itself. Snowflake, they call it micropartition. Firebolt has different concepts, but in many ways, those are huge challenges that every cloud native data warehouse deals with. So let's start to get a little bit into what you're building at Firebolt specifically. So you've started this company in the midst of this growing popularity of cloud data warehouses. And I imagine it's really hard to stand out in the market. I'd just like to know a little bit about the business ideation process, how you came upon building a, a new cloud data warehouse when there's already some really big players and, and what you were trying to do differently? So first, I think that if you're in the, at a market where you, it's being you know, fully, fully, fully owned by those huge dinosaurs, that's kind of the perfect uh, market to open a startup in. Uh, it means a lot. It means that the market is not innovating anymore. Now, Snowflake is, is an exception, right? It went from being a startup to being a giant in no time. But I've been with data warehousing. I've been building uh, databases like, like for ages, since I was 16. Uh, I've been in the space. Uh, all of my startups were around that. And when we started Firebolt, we wanted to solve what we believe was a unique and, and kind of growing problem, which didn't really concern cloud uh, data warehousing, which was efficiency. And people often get confused between efficiency and elasticity or fine-grained elasticity. So being able to pay only for what you consume has nothing to do with efficiency. Yes, of course, if you run resources and you're not using them, you're just burning money. But efficiency means how fast for how much you return a result to a user. It can be an insert, a, a huge Spark job. It can be a, a Looker dashboard serving hundreds of users. It can be data scientist uh, building a feature. Building a feature today is actually running thousands of SQL queries. You run those queries. When you build a feature, it can take you up to eight months to kind of go from a feature to a data-driven feature. So Firebolt's vision and kind of origin comes from building something that fits data engineering more and less kind of a more of a legacy strategic 10-year mindset around data warehousing. Uh, we look less at the data warehouse as a product and more about how you use SQL and data to build features. 
And as I said, it can be internal and external. Uh, both are getting as challenging as, as another. But, but that's kind of the purpose of Firebolt, to be extremely efficient at scale, and, and it's built for data engineers. And to your previous question, how do you stand out? The truth is, it's crazy. So the traction is unbelievable. And I think we touched a very painful point in this market, a big frustration around working so hard, yet ending up with a, you know, with a tableau extract, with, with, a, in, you know, with a huge aggregation or denormalization or, or all of those things we, we've been doing for 20 years, because by the end of the day, you still pay 100K to run at one terabyte of data. And with analytics, unlike other things, it's extremely challenging because there's so many little things you need to solve to get it really fast. And that's what Firebolt is all about. Make it seamless, get at data lake scale, real data lake scale. So 10 terabytes is, is really not a lot. And you want to crunch these 10 terabytes as if it was less than one terabyte. And you want to make it efficient so you can have you know, your data engineering team working on it together versus having one person kind of writing in Excel, asking for a list of SQLs that, you know, to run, getting permission because it's so expensive, constantly trying to figure out the efficient resource for the task. Yeah, getting uh, data to be valuable at scale and be efficient is, is extremely, extremely challenging today. So Firebolt makes that simple. And that's why it resonates so well with so many use cases. So people don't consider us as a rip and replace option. They shouldn't. Working along, you know, most companies we talk with, they either use or have been using multiple cloud native data warehouse for a good reason. It's super easy to trial it. It's, there's no risk. You pay for consumption. They're all the same in terms of how you move the data in. It's equal. You do a copy into, you create an external table. You just move the data into your uh, data warehouse and, uh, and they play with it. So that's kind of how Firebolt ended up getting all the traction we got just because we focused solely on making efficiency at scale super simple. And to compare it to the elephant in the room, Snowflake, What's the most driving difference between Snowflake and Firebolt? Like from the onboarding experience to the, the pricing or the efficiency, like what are the major differences? I think the, you know, the first difference is that you, it's perfectly fine to ingest much more than you thought and slice it and work it just as if it was your kind of uh, fully aggregated data. So raw data is something that your data warehouse can work with. The second thing is that, you know, many customers don't refer to us as a data warehouse. They, 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 they say data warehouse is something that IT is using. A snowflake is something that, you know, you give IT to offload their data in. They don't really connect to the data lake. And yes, it costs millions of dollars to build something that is really low latency. And those requirements for them have been everything for the last 10 years. So they're looking for something that fits that kind of mindset. And the Farbolt feels like that. It just returns fast. It's efficient. It, you know, your first glimpse, you say, how do they make money? And then after a few months, you, you pay maybe half of what you used to pay, but you do, you know, five 
X more use cases on what you did and you have many more data engineers using it. Adoption is everything. And with consumption, with efficiency, you can predict adoption. What, and what you see is that it, it gets all over the place. So it's more distributed in terms of how you use it. And it really fits a you know, developer mindset. Tell me a little bit about the engineering decisions behind Firebolt. Like, what are some of the... Maybe you could just describe the architecture and then we can we can get into some of the, the engineering design decisions. So, as I've mentioned before, this is a disaggregated uh, design, meaning S3 decoupled from compute, but also that you can spin up isolated clusters on the same data running concurrently. At its core, we have our own file format. It's a proprietary file format called Triple F. If you know, it's like Parquet or, or, or Arrow, a binary. Of course, it's totally different. It was designed to serve two things. One is our own query engine and two, efficiency. So indexing, sparse indexing, encoding and coding, ordering of the data, all tons of stuff that it's happening behind the scene for you is done through the triple F format. The goal of triple F is, is to have for each file to have a primary index. That's kind of the root of everything. You define a primary index on your table, meaning that the fields and expressions that you put into the primary index will define how your data is ordered and how your sparse indexes will be generated behind the scenes. Sparse indexes are hidden for you, but they're really, really important. They allow us to decouple access to ranges from the data itself, meaning that when, you run the, when we run the query, we don't just do the normal partition, micro partition and file pruning. We do range-based pruning, meaning we calculate the query over the sparse index. The sparse index, which is loaded in RAM on the compute layer, returns ranges, not data points. Those ranges are being merged and scanned over S3. The, the result is that you have a polymorphic file, meaning you have an overcompacted, overmerged file on S3, which means because it's ordered, it is highly, highly compressed and efficient. On the other hand, when you scan the data, you don't download the file, never. You download specific ranges, which can be tiny or huge. Whether you're doing a point query or a huge scan, those ranges will represent that. And we download the ranges and we store them in a unique way within the compute layer. So we're moving away from a, an architecture that you know, generates files and needs to kind of compromise between the size of the file on S3 versus our ability to update it. So we have this predefined size. Those files today are being downloaded, mostly pruned by partition or micro partition, which is far, far, far from what we really need. When you're scanning those pro using those products, you're scanning much more data than you actually need. So what Firebolt does is figure out, giving the predicates you're using, so your where statements and joins in your, inside your query, how to extract the exact the granular ranges and scan only those over S3. So the result is orders of magnitude of data is being pruned out of scanning. Okay, so your cold queries return only what they actually need. And then it goes kind of into an HPC 
kind of second kind of part chapter where it's all about memory bandwidth, CPU caches, just-in-time compilation and factorization, which is kind of a whole different domain. So on one end, we have storage, triple F, sitting in S3, growing and being compacted as time goes on. On the other hand, you have the compute layer that scans ranges within those files to avoid downloading files as they are. And this is a huge, huge change. It requires you to do a few very different things. So you need to order your data. If you don't order your data, you can't create sparse indexes. So for us, ordering the data is, is kind of a two, it has those two big things. One is of, about compression, okay? And the second one is we need, uh, we want to generate those sparse indexes. So we use the primary index to support that. The outcome is, is amazing and the query engine is totally redesigned. Optimizations are totally redesigned to support that kind of a core change in how we store data in a data warehouse. So think about it as having those files and each one of them is ordered by one, it can be a hundred columns, it doesn't matter, but that's a core thing within Farbo. I hope I, I kind of managed to explain it. Uh, yeah. In a, in, in, no, in a you did. I, I think I follow you. Maybe we could go through the read path and the write path of data. So maybe you could talk about like a batch ingestion and then a query against the, the storage system. So input comes at changing frequencies. On one hand, you get this consistent tickling of streams, pushing data in. On the other hand, you have those batch S3 inputs. Each needs its own unique way. If your compute resource goes down on when you ingest Kafka, it's a whole different challenge than when a compute resource goes down while you copy into from a data leak. So kind of the first part is making sure your system can handle different types of ingest pattern. If you're adding a single row or a million rows, it will affect the triple F files that are being generated. We are consistent in terms that when you insert, it's immediately available even before S3 commit. So you don't need to wait for S3 to commit the data to query it. And this is important for kind of a niche operational near real-time use case, but it's important kind of to distinguish a, between a firebolt compute and other compute. We don't need S3 to expose the data. It's already exposed the microsecond you insert it. Files are being generated and are being compacted. Our goal during the ingest, so everything that's happening behind an insert or a copy into, is to take files, to take triple F files, and to regenerate them as bigger and more compact files. And we can commit those files to S3, depending on how you want to expose the data. So you sometimes you want to say, well, I want to aggressively compact the data. It's a copy into statement. I don't care about near real time. On the other hand, some other cases you want to say, well, uh, uh, the data is, is actually, I want to analyze daily data and history at the same kind of switch, yet daily gets constantly updated every five minutes, every minute. And I want to have a, the same experience of both things in the same table. So you need to go back and recompact files. This is kind of, Similar to a data lake, of course, 100 times more efficient than a data lake. If you would build a, a, an LSM to merge and compact data today, it would look different than, than one you would use 
with Rocks to Beer something similar 10 years ago, but the concept is the same. We, we can merge and compact data, okay? It's being done when data gets committed, it's being done over time, over your S3, and it's crucial. So there are many things that you need compaction and, and kind of merging for, but it also gives you the ability to ingest different, you know, data at different speeds and, and different uh, pulses. Once the data gets ingested, it gets committed to S3, and then it's available to other compute blocks, compute resources. So if you have three use cases running over the same table, all of them will immediately get kind of the same version of the same data once the data gets committed to S3. And once the data is committed, that's it. It's for you as a user, it's, it's you know, just like any data warehouse, the storage layer, everything I've described in terms of, of, of sparse indexing, scanned ranges and stuff like that is happening uh, for you. You don't need to deal with it. And that's basically it. Of course, over time, there is the dupe. There is upsurge. There is merging. There is there, there's tons of stuff, but it's all being driven by the same concepts behind the scenes. So you write a new file that represents a delta, yet you need to replace and merge other files to, you know, to keep things efficient and to make sure everything is consistent. In other words, you don't read about it in the documentation in your data warehouse. You would usually read about it in your Spark uh, deployment. You would need to know about it, but the purpose of the data warehouse is exactly that, is, is to oversimplify stuff you worried about you know, with, with, with legacy systems. You mentioned Spark there. My sense is that there's kind of a dichotomy in the direction that people are going with their rapid access data management and and one direction is is people going all in on spark and then the other direction is people going all in on snowflake or or, or name your data warehouse do you have that sense as well is the, is the is the commitment to spark in an organization mutually exclusive with the commitment to a data warehouse or do these do these serve kind of uh, heterogeneous purposes so a few years ago, I would say, if you're coming from data engineering, you would use Spark, no matter what. And if you're coming from Vertica or Oracle, you would use Snowflake. That was a few years ago. Today, everything is mixed. Today, they're competing on, 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 on the same use cases. So up until recently, you would use, need Spark to drive Snowflake. You would use Spark to simplify your workloads, aggregate them, filter them, do some calculations over them. This would be the data engineer's job. And then they would offload that into an S3 bucket, which would end up in a Snowflake, which is used by your marketing and finance and, and BI and, and you know more traditional teams in the same company. Today, you will see data engineering teams using Snowflake running DBT, completely replacing Spark. By the way, DBT, this is the one of these huge things that are changing everything. With DBT and a cloud-native data warehouse, you don't need to run a Spark anymore. Yes, of course, we're talking about maybe 80, 70% of what you're using Spark for. There are many things you need Spark that you can't use your data warehouse for, uh, but if it comes to data serving, so aggregating, filtering, you know, joining data, you know, doing kind of a, ELT-ish stuff, why use a Spark if uh, you just use a DBT? Uh, it can be used by so many people in your org 
and you just pick your data warehouse, you can switch between the data warehouse. You don't change your DBT script. So that is also a huge thing that's happening. Tools that simplify, that use, exploit data warehouses, cloud native data warehouses, to simplify stuff that you needed a whole team to do a few years back. So to your question, I think everything is getting mixed up. Databricks will be 100% SQL over the next five years. Snowflake is SQL, will be SQL, but we'll kind of try to do more of a sparkish uh, use cases. And yeah, we'll end up like, like fashion, you know, it repeats itself. Your data warehouse, your big vendors will add more and more stuff. You know, they'll add BI, they will add ELT, they will, it will become this huge thing that you can use for tons of stuff, which is amazing for many companies. But I think it's really about self-service. I think that what's happening now is about making data movement, data serving, data analytics, more self-service. And that's why cloud-native data warehouses are so important because they're simpler. And in terms of the market, I guess it's just not zero sum because there's there's room for uh, for all these different players to grow. There's so much legacy, so many legacy companies that basically have nothing in the way of data infrastructure relative to the amount of data that they have. There's lots of new companies that are getting started that just have, uh, you know, they they from very early days they'll be generating terabytes of data just because of the nature of their business. So the, I guess these are these are all just just gigantic growth industries that probably even today look smaller than they truly are. Absolutely. You know, medtech, fintech, uh, edtech, cyber, all of those industries are reinventing legacy with data, basically. So if you look at, you know, those type of companies, every company will be this type of company one way or another going forward. The way they operate on data is just different. It's not reactive. It, it starts with the data. They, they build everything around it. It's not a, a side, an afterthought. It's not something we connect to our company so you can build something. It's something that we build our company on. And yeah, it, and it drives different culture. It, it builds different, it's being built differently. I think, I think the market is, 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 is going to explode like, 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 crazy like, like everything ends everything needs to analyze the data no matter what you're going to build you'll need something to crunch your data and we will see more companies much more competition much more innovation there are amazing companies and startups out there definitely i think we're super lucky uh to have been kind of uh building what we're building at this period it's exciting We've been building this company remotely, like, you know, it's, it's, everything is distributed from, from the way your culture works. We have five offices. We're just 70 people. Your product is distributed. It's on the cloud. And yeah, as we see, the market really needs some more, more of that. So yes, we're also lucky to be building what we're building at these times. Doing that 10 years ago would be very boring. By the way, my previous startup, SciSense, was also started as a started as a database company, an HPC database. Nobody even thought about buying a database from us. They looked at us in a weird way. It was 20 years ago. And it was just different. Today, you go online, you talk to the, to the team, to the data engineering team, 
they're able to make a decision and try you out after 40 minutes. There's nothing else to do. It's consumption. There's no risk. So they can use their own budgets and they can just move forward quicker. You use Slack to support customers immediately. Everything is different. And SQL drives most of it and will drive most of it going forward. What do you expect the competitive dynamics to be like you know, as you get to a place where you are more and more in competition with a snowflake, like how do you expect to just in terms of like the, 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 the macro competitive dynamics, like in terms of marketing and winning the big customer contracts. And I'm just curious, you know, considering you've run a database company before, I'd love to know what it looks like when it gets to the point where you, you really need to get big, big numbers in order to make the company grow and you really start to, to be colliding with the gigantic companies in the area. So first, we qualify only for prospects that are using Snowflake, Athena, Redshift, and BigQuery. We will not speak with, with someone who's not been using one of those, meaning that 100% of our business is coming from replacing use cases running on the best of breed, the modern cloud-native data warehouse. If you're using a Vertica, we will kindly ask you to try Snowflake first. If you're just starting with Snowflake, we'll wish you good luck and we'll talk to you in a few months and you'll love Snowflake. You know, we talk to many prospects, they love Snowflake. Yet, Snowflake can solve all of their problems. So 10%, 15% of their workload, they need something else. So they look for it. Uh, we don't need to make a big marketing statement other than we can show you that it takes a few clicks to get your data into Firebolt. You'll see how to do that. It's SQL, 100% SQL. And, and you can compare apples to apples. In fact, we only show kind of apples to apples. We give you the result and, and you see the results and you compare it to what you're using side by side. That is very different from how you used to compare and evaluate it in a warehouse before, okay? And, and I think the reason is because we go after the data engineering teams that are just moving so fast and, and they're not really connected to this kind of a strategic, long-term, unified data warehouse strategy, which exists in other industries. And th therefore, we're not selling to the financial industry. We do sell to cloud-driven financial products. So if you're in fintech, you would use a Firebolt easily. We run on AWS only, and, and we're amazed to see that what we would consider to be a big, huge enterprise deal a few years back is now the, you know, a budget for a data warehouse that a data engineering team is running. And they don't need 50 people to approve anything. It's a 5, 10, 20, 30 people team, and they can make all the decisions themselves it's crazy fast and it fits the way we work with data on now versus before. So yeah, we, we went online a few months ago, we went out of stealth and we immediately started to sell. So you don't do a six months trial. I think another thing that helps is ecosystem. So it's, it's in many, you know, many times it's being overlooked by database companies. And if, in, in, if you're into analytics, then most of your customers will use some kind of tool to speak to you. So Looker, Tableau, DBT, 
you need to be really able to support those. You need to have a very robust SQL layer to support those. So there's tons, tons, tons of investment that you need to make to make, you know, to call yourself a data warehouse. But but once you pass that critical point, it's happening. It's actually happening all the time now. We're growing like crazy. <laughs> and it's consumption. So Snowflake wrote the playbook for us, and we thank them for that. I still want to understand, like, the, the market point of view more deeply. Like, is there a market that from the past that you compa- you can compare this to like uh, I don't know the database market in you know some some time period or the BI market in some time period where you have this you know set of d- really dominant players already redshift and snowflake and 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 bigquery which some people really like where there is still room for a player in what you know what some people might consider later on in the game I think actually database market is one of those places where you constantly see huge dinosaurs being completely eaten by small fish. Snowflake is the latest one. But Redshift was before. Redshift was nothing. It was this tiny experiment. And boom, nobody's using Oracle for analytics anymore. So, And then we had self-service in memory, which replaced kind of the legacy way to, to do analytics. So I think actually with databases, not to mention open source and, and, and everything that's happening over there, but the database market is constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. It's it's amazing. It's and, and if you look today, being able to exploit the cloud at a an intimate deep level is makes the data warehouse even more fascinating. And 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 that's why uh, you constantly see innovation here, and it's happening. It's been happening all the time. So okay, a few more thing, a few more areas I want to cover. So let's let's talk about DBT a little bit. You've mentioned DBT a couple times, and I think there are people who still don't quite understand DBT and and why it is so transformative. Could you give your elevator pitch for DBT and and how it's changed the market for data analytics? So I will give mine and kind of the way I look at DBT through my experience with Firebolt. And because DBT is huge and people do tons of stuff with it. But for me in Firebolt, DBT allows people to simplify their pipelines dramatically and go from an engineering effort into this ad hoc, uh, like LookerML, like what, you know, like, like really simple and, and easy way to manage your data cadence, to version your data, to understand how your metadata is being applied and by whom. And DBT allows you to do that at scale as well because it runs on cloud-native data warehouses. So that makes DBT a superpower for an analyst that depended on the Spark team yesterday to prepare the data for him. And the data scientist, she had to wait for a week for the Spark team to kind of get her task prioritized. And now... What they're doing is they're doing it themselves. They're building the DPTs and they're using the data warehouse in so many you know, interesting ways behind the scenes to accomplish big, big tasks they, they wouldn't dream of doing before DBT. So it's not just DBT. It's the fact that DBT runs on cloud-native data warehouse. This coupling makes DBT extremely dangerous for stuff we would consider complex before. Okay. To close off, 
any perspective on the future? I guess I'd love to know the future in, in terms of what you're anticipating in terms of the market and also engineering decisions and company direction within Firebolt. What do you think is, is going to be built in the next five, 10 years? So I think one of the biggest things that will come in the next few years is hardware changes. Actually, for a change, uh, uh, we've been looking at hardware on the cloud for the last you know, five years at least, nothing happened. Uh, FPGAs and more importantly, GPUs, or more precisely, kind of the future of how GPUs are going to be built is, is going to change analytics as well. GPUs weren't really valuable for, for data warehousing for many technical reasons. And if you look at the Grace architecture, architecture, for example, that's coming in, I don't know, a year or two years from NVIDIA, this is completely new. This gives us memory bandwidth to use the GPU for stuff that we haven't been able to use before in our domain, analytics, OLAP, data warehousing, you know, a hash lookup, which basically is kind of half of your challenge when you run a query. So a lot of, of technical stuff that can be done much better on the GPU will start happening. And it fits a cloud data warehouse because you decouple the compute, kind of the, the, the physical compute for the user. So you don't need to know whether you're using a GPU and when precisely. So if I'm deserializing parquets with a GPU or using a GPU-ran LSM to do compaction, or if I'm using my GPU to decompress at, you know, at, ta- at the table scan and then move that to the CPU to do kind of higher uh, high-end operators, this is the data warehouse's job. And I think it's exciting. You know, Firebolt personally, there's, you know, tremendous kind of uh, know-how and background around HPC, GPUs, and we've been exploiting that in, with Firebolt and we plan on doing that. Uh, and I think that's kind of a big, exciting thing that we haven't been used to before in the cloud. So I think it's big changes coming. Might take a year or two, but definitely we'll start seeing GPUs doing a big comeback. So this is not a niche GPU-driven data warehouse anymore, like if you look at the benchmark, right? But uh, it's really, really something else. This is one thing I think. And the the other thing is, you know, self-service of of data, really taking those eight months you need to go to production and be data-driven and turn that into a two-week sprint, make it efficient, make it simple. I think that's something everyone appreciates. And we actually forgot how important it is when you're using data data on a daily basis. So we need that a lot more. And yes, I think the ecosystem is evolving as well. So you don't need to talk to kind of those just huge legacy uh, partners anymore. You're talking to tens of, of startups, of whether they're kind of more mature startups or new startups, like from the Monte Carlos, the DBTs, like so many interesting things happening on the ecosystem now that is uh, exciting to see you know, how it will evolve going forward. Okay, great conversation. Congrats on the success. Thanks. Thanks for having me.